Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the talks from the 2022 East End Conference that took place over the weekend of April 23rd and 24th at the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the heart of the East End of London. Steve Blommer is the author of Inside Bucks Row, the first volume of a planned six-book series, and has had articles published in Ripperologist magazine and the Journal of the Whitechapel Society. He presented a talk on the Seaside Home Witness at the 2021 casebook Jack the Ripper online conference. Steve's talk takes a look at the reliability of the timings given in police and witness reports for the Whitechapel murders, and is entitled, A Question of Time. He went to medical research for 35 years and served two terms as the elected borough councillor as an elected borough councillor in the London Borough of Barnet. He relocated, relocated to Glasgow in 2018. Since taking early retirement, he's far too young. In 2014, he's been a full-time researcher. He's the author of Inside Books Row, which I absolutely love that book. So many questions to ask you for this. Um, the first volume of, the, of a six-book six series. He also wrote the chapter of the chapter on Kosminski in the Pen and Sword book, Who is Jack the Ripper? And has had articles published in Ripper Olives magazine and the Journal of the Whitechapel Society and has also appeared several times on Rippercast. He's presented a talk at the Seaside Home Witness at, sorry, on the Seaside Home Witness, he didn't meet him, at the 2021 <laughs> Casebook Jack the Ripper Online Conference. He has many interests, including watching cricket. He played since he was in his early 40s, two years ago. Politics. Authorities that authorities studies, Egyptology, Medfield, medieval England, and naval history. Can you please welcome to talk about his side books, Row? Good morning, folks. Um, some people will know me here, some won't. Those who do will know that timings are one of my pet subjects. It's like I'm really interested in, and today we're just going to do one small section of that. Just one small section of that. <coughs> timings are actually an enormous subject, and it's not six books I'm working on, now it's 11. And there's a book actually on timings and how these apply in the period. So let's just move on onto the talk itself. Often, one of the problems we often have is that people talk about this happened at this exact time, this moment. It's 3.40 or it's 3.45, it was hours arguing over it. Well, the problem is, of course, that these points, these types are given as facts and become accepted as facts in the books year after year after year, and they, make, they have to become part of the theory. There's only one problem with this, is that often these times are based on false assumptions, and often the times they're given have no relationship to each other at all. And those assumptions are incorrect. Today we're going to look at um, a couple of points here, specific points rather than the whole gamut of timings. The first one we're going to look at is 
public clocks. How accurate were, are they today? And then try and work out how accurate they may have been 130 years ago. Because no matter what you're using to you to as a watch, it's like you've got to set it by something. And this is one of the serious problems. We will then, I mean, railway clocks were fairly well synchronised all over the country. But that's railway clocks. It's not going to be the same as soon as you get away from a railway. And it, I mean, it is true that in the second half of the 19th century, some of the ports and railways, um, cities, started to get much more synchronised with their times. And it's a nice paper there, um, which you can go and look at and um, read up on how this was starting to take place in parts of northern UK. The police also had the ability to synchronise time to an extent in that they knew how long their beats were going to take. Um, so they could roughly guesstimate what time they were at a certain spot. But public clocks, which are often used, there's no really meaningful degree of synchronisation between them at all. And today, in 2022, public clocks are often less than 100% synchronised compared to GMT. And particularly when you compare them to the network times we get on mobile phones these days, which are to the tenth of a second quite often. <clears throat> so first of all, we're going to look at public clocks today and how accurate they are, and then try and backtrack to 1888. We're then going to take part in two case studies, one on Bucks Row, and the point with Bucks Row is that we're going to look at and see not the actual times, but how people arrived at the times they had. So when someone says, this happened at 3.40, how did they get to 3.40? And we're then going to do the same with Mitre Square. So let's go straight away with how accurate are public clocks. I mean, basically, I did a 12-month study up in Glasgow. I couldn't do it in London. I live in Glasgow, so I used public clocks in Glasgow City Centre. The ones I used are all within a mile of each other. So it equates to about the Whitechapel area sort of thing. And I took 150 photographs, and I think I've included 10 photographs in, this, in, 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 this, in the talk. So, so, so the times at the bottom they're the actual times, the real time according to the network clock. So these are two near to uh, Gallowgate in, in Glasgow. That one's fairly accurate. That one's a couple of minutes out. But then we get on to the interesting bit of here, where you've got more than one face to the clock. And we can see there, not only are the times not right, they're actually different on each face of the clock. So you can look at the same clock and have a different time. Uh, we've got another example here. This is the Goma Library, just down from George Square. And on one of these, the actual time is about seven minutes out on one of the faces. These ones are fairly accurate, actually. They're only a couple of minutes out compared to the proper time, and two clock faces are fairly accurate. And that one there is a modern clock, much more modern than the others, and it's actually always spot on. It's within 30 seconds always. This one's a church, uh, you can see, it's about two or three minutes out of that one there. So it's 
So the conclusions that we can reach from looking at these public clocks are that even today, when we've got established synchronised methods of timekeeping, the public clocks are prone to be inaccurate. And it's clear that multi-phase clocks do not always show the same time on each face. We can therefore reasonably conclude that using public clocks to synchronise time, unless of course you use the same public clock in the same face, is highly inaccurate. So we now move on to the case study of Bucks Row. For those of you who don't know, Bucks Row is another one of my pet subjects. We're not going to be looking at the actual times given by the witnesses, but how they arrived at those times. We do, however, need to say what the times they gave were, otherwise it's meaningless. And we've done this in the following table. So here are all the people in, I consider involved. Are Charles Cross leaves home at about 3.30, and he's in Dufton Street. Robert Paul, in the Lloyd's Weekly News account, at exactly 3.45, he's passing down Bucks Row. Yet in his um, testimony at the inquest, it's about or just before 3.45, he's leaving home. PC John Neal says about 3.45. Jonas Mizzen says about 3.45. PC Fain says about 3.45. We've then got two much more dubious ones. Walter Perkis says 3.45 or 4 o'clock, depending on which report you read. And a woman named Harriet Lilly, who lived two doors down from the murder site, who said she heard some noises as a train passed. The only problem is we know what time the train should have passed, not what time it actually passed. It should have passed at about 3.30, but apparently the railway um, company had a tendency to run a few minutes late. And now we've got a nice map showing where everyone was with those times are, are, are given there. So that's the murder site there. So you've got Perkis in the dark purple, um, you've got PC Neil in the bright purplish, and you've got Harriet Lily just along there. Um, I think it's self-explanatory really, that map. I mean, <laughs> the interesting bit of course is that we have, when Robert Paul is at the junction here, just there, he gives a time of 3.45, but when he gets here, Risen says it's 3.45. It's, you know, they can't all be right. So, let's comparing witness times in brief. Apart from Robert Paul and his Lord's article, everybody says about or around. It's only um, Robert Paul who gives the exact, exact, exact exactly this time. I think the comments of Perkis can, are probably best to be very cautious with these, given that they vary by 15 minutes, depending on the press report. So best to probably ignore those. And the same needs to be said with Harriet Lee to a degree. Um, the shame is that she was not called to the inquest. If she had have been called, I'm sure Baxter with his no-nonsense approach would either have exposed her as a complete charlatan or a story would have stood up to a certain degree. Unfortunately, she wasn't called. We don't know why. Now, how were the times set? This is the interesting part, part here. Now, the problem is in Bucks Road, we've got no idea how the times were set. No one says, I checked this watch, I checked this clock, or anything else. 
nothing for speculation about how it might have happened. For the police, for the three police officers, we have several possibilities, of course. They each had a known beat, they knew how long the beat started, and therefore they'd been fairly accurate about where they got to a certain point, but it's not going to be precise. They may each have had a watch. Um, we don't know, they don't say if they have watches or not, and even if they did, are those watches synchronised with each other? Are they synchronised with GMT? Um, one would assume if they did have watches, they would have synchronised them or checked them at the start of their beats. Probably at the police station where the time is fairly accurate. Uh, they may, of course, have used public clocks to check stuff. Now, let's look at Robert Paul here, for instance. In that area, how many public clocks are there around Bucks Road? Well, there's the one on the front of the London Hospital, to which Robert Paul couldn't have seen, and there's possible clock at the Albion Brewery next to the blind beggar. Mizzen's a little different in that he's knocking up. So we assume that he's knocking up at set time and he may well have a watch on him. Again, he doesn't say. So, Moving on from the police officers, we have um, Charles Cross, Lechmere, and Robert Poole. Lechmere gives the time for leaving home. It's approximate, it's not exact. One must assume that he either had a watch in the, on him or a clock in the house. Um, <coughs> how those were set and how they were synchronised and how they compared to everyone else is anyone's guess. Robert Paul, in his Lloyd's account, gives a time of exactly 3.45. Now, how does he come to this exactly? Either he has a watch he looks at, which he trusts completely, or he uses a public clock. Now, the only public clock <coughs> I was aware of would have been the Alton Brewery. Or his time's not exact at all. Now, there's some sketches here. The photograph is the Albion Brewery a couple of years ago. We can see there's a public clock there, uh, which can be seen from the Whitechapel Road. But could that be seen from the other side in Bath Street? Well, sketch from 1889, I think it is, which shows what looks like a clock tower to the side of that. And it looks like a multi-faced clock tower. Now, we weren't sure if it was, and... Um, I went off and did some research, and I have to thank Bruce Colley for his help with this. In, you know, immense help of trying to sort this out. He gave up his time on this. We checked the maps. There's the gold map, and there's the mid-1890s Ordnance Survey, and there's no indication of a clock tower on either map. Uh, we've looked hard to get which might be. There's nothing there. But then Bruce found this. This sketch from 1903, with, in the background there, this tower, which could be a clock tower, just there. Um, and we can work out where we are. We're actually here. Now, Robert Poole <coughs> would have come down here, basically, almost opposite that entrance, the archway there. Um, the only problem is that looking at that, he's walking along Bath Street. I don't think he can actually see that public clock with the buildings in between. Now, results of that case study. Um, the early examples I gave of public clocks not being spot on, and multi-face clocks being even worse, means we need to seriously look at the possibility of Robert Paul using the clock to fix his time. And let's just, see, let's just assume that he can see it, because I'm not sure he could. It should be noted that the inquest, Paul changed the his account from, it was when he was entering Bucks Row, 
at exactly 3.45 to he left home at or just before 3.45. Now, a point of interest here is that Paul claims in the Lloyd's account that he took about from the time he saw the body of Nichols until the time he met Mizzen, about four minutes. Now, surprisingly enough, that's actually quite a, a, a good estimation. When you sit down and work out walking speeds and estimate how long the exchange between him and Lechner were taken, three and a half to four and a half minutes is quite accurate. That suggests to me that he may have had a watch. Say four minutes, why not say five? Five would be the more obvious for rounding up. Why say four? I think he actually had a watch. And another point occurred to me, while I was writing up my rough notes yesterday, what about the possibility, because he says as he's entering Bucks Rose, exactly 3.45, well, the possibility that there was a clock of some sort on the roebuck, or in the window of the roebuck. Nowhere proven that, no photographs at the time to show it. That's a possibility. But again, of course, that's not synchronised to anyone else. We don't know how it's fixed. <clears throat> Whichever it was, there's no reason to believe that the time given by Robert Paulo is any more reliable than that given by any others. And the probability must be that the police, at least, are more likely to be synchronised to each other. Particularly Neil and Fane, who talk about... Um, I've mentioned 345. It's not spot on, because Robert Paul, um, John Neil gets there at 3.45, and about a minute, minute and a half later, Fane says 3.45. So it's, it's close, but not spot on. Second case study. This is slightly different than Niger Square. We're going to look at exactly the same sort of points. Um, not going to look at exact times. We're going to look at how people arrived at their times. And again, we're going to have bits and pieces to look at. Now, previous work, I cannot praise highly enough the work that was done by Gavin Bromley and two articles of Ripper 74 and 75. These are outstanding works. Although I disagree on some minor points about the actual times, the methodology is brilliant. Um, what was outstanding about that is that it's the first person I could see who actually started talking about absolute times as opposed to relative times. Now, absolute times, obviously, is 3.45. It happened here. A relative time is, this happened three minutes after I found the body, or sort of thing. A lot of the work that I've done in, inside Buck's Row owes a great deal to Gavin Bromley's articles. I have no hesitation in praising that, acknowledging it. So, And of course, his work also looked at, Gavin's work looked at the exact location of the post office, which was open to debate. It seems to have moved around a little bit over the couple of years. And Gavin, I think, pinpointed where it was. And this is important because Harvey uses the post office as the source of his time. And if you haven't read those articles in Reprologist, I suggest you go and download the copies and read them. They're well worth reading. Now, same sort of time um, chart for all of this. I mean, Joseph the vendor, he's just come out of the Imperial Club in Duke Street, 3.45. Joseph, I'm leaving the same, 3.45. Edward Watkins gives an exact time of 1.44, and there's a reason why he gives an exact time. Uh, Harvey gives 1.41 or 1.42, 
and that's depending on various bits and pieces of walking speeds and the rest of it, because he's backtracking, he's not actually, he's estimating where he was at that time. I then got um, George Hutt, who was the um, police officer at Bishop Street Station, who was uh, involved in releasing Eddowes, and we assume the time he gave for releasing her is based on the police clock. And then I include Jane Blinkensop, uh, Jane Blinkensop, because he gives a time, she's out to everyone else, may or may not be related, but it's imprecise, he doesn't give a reason for it, and he's used it as a comparison to the others. Again, we've got the maps here showing where everyone was. So you've got um, the vendor and Levy are there. James Harvey comes down there. Post office clocks are there. Watkins is there. And Lincoln stops there. <coughs> now, the times of the witnesses is quite interesting. Unlike in Bucks Row, where we've got no, no idea where the times came from, we know for almost every single witness in Mitre Square where the time came from. Watkins had his own watch. Now, whether that was synchronised to anyone else in the case, we've got no idea. We assume it was probably synchronised to the police station clock and therefore is fairly accurate, but we don't know. Harvey backtracked his to get, to get his time. He used the time he heard the whistle of, Mo of George Morris blowing his whistle. He then backtracked, mentioning the post office clock to say where he, what time he was in church passage. It's interesting to some degree that he doesn't actually mention the time of Watkins at all. I find that strange that he doesn't use Watkins, he uses, so they're not synchronised, obviously those two. Lavender and Levy are synchronised. They use the same um, clock at the Imperial Club. Although the fact that the vendor then checks that clock against his own watch suggests he's not 100% reliable. It feels like that, that that clock is reliable. And of course we have the, the, the question of, is one clock, is the clock being used to set the watch, or is the watch being used to set the clock? All imponderables. And so Hutt, we assume, Hutt uses the police station time, which is going to be as accurate as anything else, probably as close to GMT as you're going to get, I would, I would assume. And Blinkers, as I said, it's just there to contrast, to show that his, his comments are highly questionable, very much like a lot of those in Bucks Row, and there's no source for that time at all. So conclusions on the Mitre Square case study. We've firmly identified that most of the sources mentioned by the various witnesses. However, only the vendor and Levy can be said to be truly synchronised. They use the same source, the Imperial Club, but they're not synchronised to anybody else, just to themselves. As I said before, given that the vendor says that he's double-checked the time, suggests he may not have been entirely certain about the accuracy of the club clock. Harvey's again says that he synchronised, he, he, he worked his time out based on backtracking using the post office rather than Watkins. If he didn't use Watkins I'd say they were fairly well synchronised, but he doesn't. And I wonder why. Suggests to me those times cannot be, Watkins is um, 44, cannot be equated <coughs> to the 41 or 42 as given by Harvey. I don't think they're related at all. I think it's just guesswork. It's therefore reasonable to speculate that Watkins and Harvey were not synchronised. 
one interesting point here is that no, none of the witnesses in the Mitre Square case use the public clock on the church as a, as a source, which really does make me wonder just how often those public clocks were checked. Because no one seems to mention that, and you can hear it, uh, and it's, it, it, it's a in distance of everything. And about the high-rise buildings you've got now, it's probably easily seen from there as well. So conclusions and summing up. Few, if any of the times mentioned in the two case studies, can said to be synchronised to any real degree at all. In Buckstrow, maybe Fane and Neil are fairly well synchronised, but they're not for long. They're within a minute or so, but they're not synchronised. In Mitre Square, only the vendor and Levy can be said to be synchronised to each other, but they're not synchronised to anybody else. So, conclusion sum again. None of the times that are mentioned in either case study can be accepted as being synchronised to GMT. And we really need to stop talking absolute times regards to the Whitechapel murders. All the times mentioned are no more than estimates. Now, I believe today, from the research I've done on public clocks, you can allow three minutes either way. I believe in 88, you can probably allow five minutes either way and possibly, possibly longer. Relative times, of course, are a completely different matter, and we can use those quite well. I actually do some of that inside Buck's Row, where I estimate the shortest distance and time between Lechmere and Paul leaving the body of Nichols, and when John Neal arrived, based on the known walking speeds of the police, with the, the, where he had to be, where they couldn't see him, the closest place he had to be. We can do relative times like that. And the main thing here is we've got to stop people trying to make theories that are pure, that are based on to the second. This happens at 3.45. This happens at 1.45. This happens here. This happens there. It doesn't work. And actually, it, it degrades our work in some respects. It belittles our work. It makes it far too simple. And it gives, gives people who want to make a, a theory a get out every single time. I hope that's covered it. I'd say there's a book which will be much more in depth than this. This is just a quick intro, a taster really. I've rushed it a little bit because I'm very bad at pacing myself here. Um, I hope people have enjoyed it. Thank you very much for that, Steve. Um, what about Louis Dean shoots and the tobacconist? In the, clock in, the clock in there. Was that the most accurate one? No, because what we've got, we also got a problem there, haven't we? That um, when PC Smith arrives yeah. back at the top of Burner Street, yeah. he's using the same clock which um, Dean shoots has used. But the timings compared to when he claims he was last there don't seem to work out. They seem to be two or three minutes difference. And again, even if that, even if Dimschutz is right about the time there, what's it synchronised with? Yeah, yeah, it is just the clock. Ultimately. It's just the clock. Someone has has used another clock somewhere or what to synchronise it with, and where they've got the synchronisation from that for? It's, I mean, we've got used today to the old talking clock and um, computer times. It's so easy to get times right now. Back then, it's, it, it's much more.
this. I suppose because it's the double. Sorry, I suppose because it's the double event, it is at least linear. So at least you know. Yes. He's here, then he's yeah, definitely yeah, there. Yes. Yeah. If the double event's a real double event, which I think it is. Yeah. We then have time. There's plenty of time for him to get between both. Twelve minutes between the two legislators. Yeah. yeah. And he's got much more than twelve minutes to get between the two And meter in. Yeah. Particularly if you think that Schwartz actually sees the, sees the attack, yes. then he's got half hour, forty minutes at least yeah. to get between the two sides. Thank you very much. Um, I'll be throwing it open to questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, just uh, just thinking in terms of the, the exact time quoted, uh, I think one thing that we forget in the noisy modern age is that there are other ways of knowing the time. Um, when I was in university, um, where I was staying was right opposite Durham Cathedral. Um, and I, ha I didn't bother having a watch. Uh, it was pre-internet. And I knew when it was quarter to four in the morning ah, and the chimes. This is the problem, you see. How do you know that clock's right? Well, I don't, but it was a point of reference. Yes, it gives you a so rough estimation. So yes. probably that clock is to, is, is to within two or three minutes of the right time. But the odds of it being spot on, I think, are pretty low. Yes, but again, again it depends on the acoustics of the area, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah. Where I was caught in there, yeah. it was a very large area that you could yeah. hear the clock across, yeah. uh, the the chimes yeah. across. Well, this is what we. This is why I went and did all the research on public clocks to show they're not accurate. They're not accurate now, and they certainly weren't accurate in 1888. Uh, they're a good indication for an est for a guesstimate of the time. Yes. The problem is that too many people try and base theories onto the second timings, yeah. and it doesn't work. It works in paper when they write about it and put a TV documentary up because they're not exploring it. If you had an audible striking clock, yeah. and I'm thinking of the Mrs. Long case here, yeah. for example, it might not be right that you would expect everybody within earshot of it to agree. Yeah. Probably, yes. Pro probably, yes. But of course, Mrs. Long's outside in the street. Mm. And she doesn't hear it then, she heard it a little bit before, didn't she? She hears it as she's passing, the end of Hanbury Street. Um, Kadosh, obviously the one who we're looking at here, he's inside, he might not hear it. We don't know how loud that chime was. Yeah, well that's the other question. Yeah, we don't know how loud it was. He might not have actually been awake at the time. But do we actually know of the clocks in the area, other than Christchurch, which ones made a noise? I don't think we do. No. Well, we know that the That's your next the, we know that the, <laughs> we know that, we know that apparently the brewery clocks struck at a time, but that, we really don't know. Further research. Yeah, it is. But I think the time is at Humphrey Street is particularly weird because this is at one point that um, is it John Davis who's mending his booth? Is it John Davis? Um, I think there, is there a body lying next to him at the time and did he know it's Richard's it? Richard's yes. Richard yeah. This is where they do get the quarter two mixed up yeah, yeah. quarter past yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's, yeah. That's yeah, I don't see it's possible that he could have missed seeing the body. I think in the state it was in, you'd notice. You smell Sorry. I think you said about Robert Paul being fairly accurate, but would he be setting off at the same time in the morning accurate. to, go to, no, go to I work? I don't think he's accurate at all. I think, okay. I believe that they all gave, the times they gave, they all believed was the right time. I don't think anyone invented the time. I just think their times weren't synchronised with each other. Mm. This is how, when we get on to the Lechmere argument, the Lechmere people managed to create a nine minute gap 
from let's me arriving in Bucks Row to when Robert Paul arrives there, and it's purely invented. It's purely imaginary. So it's like Robert Paul's like, oh, it's three thirty in the morning. I need to get start walking yeah. to work now. Yeah. Maybe. Well, he's running late. We know Robert Paul was actually running late. He says so. He says he's running late and he leaves home. Now. Most people assume that Lechmere is running late because he says so, but Lechmere only actually says he's running late after the exchange of Robert Paul in Bucks Row. It could be what he really meant was, I'm running behind time now because I've stopped to look at the body. Could be as simple as that because the time he's there, even if we go for the 3.45 time, it doesn't really matter what the time is because if they're not synchronised, it doesn't matter what the real time is, is at all. We know at 3.45 he can still get to work on time. He's still get to work by 4 o'clock. He's got to go a bit faster, but he can still get to work by 4 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sarah. I've got a question about making time-based deductions. Yeah. So, in Mitre Square, with the timings you've listed, yeah. the killer would only have had about nine minutes, potentially, yeah. with um, Catherine Eddowes get her to the spot of the killing to kill her and do more than kill her yeah. and get away. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, from the way you stated the timings, whether it would be safe to make the assumption that the clock at the Imperial Club might have been ahead of time, because it certainly it doesn't could seem to be we don't enough know. The fact, time. Yeah. It could well have been. Actually, the nine minutes, some people say only seven minutes, even seven minutes is plenty of time to do it. I speak from experience. I speak from experience. Yeah. Not of murder, but of But of shall we say of surgical procedures. We are recording this. Yeah. And of course there's also the possibility. How do I put this nicely? Every other night of the week, Watkins has a cup of tea with George Morris. It's just this night, he doesn't. Now, it's been raining as well. Um, I wonder if he actually was in there and a cup of tea. And there's actually a bigger gap there than we think. It's just speculation. You can't take it any further than that. But it's a possibility. In Read the people who kept the various public clocks up to date and wound up yeah. and, and what have you. Was this a job for each individual workplace as it was an employee assigned the task, or was, was this an outside contractor? Because of my thoughts on that would be... Nice question. It would be more likely if it was an outside contractor for the clock to I see no evidence to show they use an outside contractor. I haven't been able to find it. So an you think it was an employee? I think it was the local people. If it's a church clock, it'd be the guy in the church yeah. sensor. It was, because I've done that as a volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the public clocks, the brewery would be set by the, by the brewery. The brewery may even set their clock a bit fast to make sure people get to work on time. Yeah. Um, if it's the London Hospital, one assumes that someone, it's, it's, it's the janitorial staff of the hospital that's setting the clock. Also, the thing of public clocks, at three o'clock in the morning, how well illuminated are they? I mean, would you really be able to see what the clock face is at 3.45 in the morning or 3.40 or 1.30, you know? So much guesstimation here, and my main argument here is that I get really upset with people who make theories based on the second. And I think it's disingenuous, and I think it's unfair on the rest of us.
quick ones. Steve, first of all, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. I hadn't, I didn't, I hadn't given any thought at all to clocks of accuracy. Um, again, I'm, I think I probably know the answer to this question, but what about the doctors who attended the uh, the victims? Would their clock be more accurate, do you think? No. Because they're doing official reports? No. No? Okay. They've got, they've got the same problem. If they're using a watch or they're using the clock at home, how do they synchronise that with GMT? How do they synchronise that with, with the the time that the police have got? And that's when they get there, they say, okay, what time do you make it now, um, PC Neil? Yeah. Oh, good, we're, we're synchronised now, so I can now back, we, we weren't, I can now backtrack to things. I just don't think it happened. I seriously don't think that happened. Okay, any more questions? Rippercast would like to thank all of the speakers at the 2022 East End Conference for allowing us to release this year's presentations. And a special thank you to the organizers, Carl Kopek, Andrew Firth, Mark Ripper, and Adam Wood. If you would like more information on the East End Conference, you can join their group on Facebook or follow us here at Rippercast and we'll keep you updated. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.